0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations.
2: Prices
3: vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents, She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
4: Hi, everyone. It's Meredith. As more and more of us head outdoors this summer, we're throwing it back to an episode we recorded last year that was all about women's gear. The gear you need, the gear you don't, and why women's outdoor gear in particular is so mediocre these days. We had a great time talking with Shelma June, Jenny Bruso, and Blair Braverman, and we hope you enjoy the conversation and don't worry we'll be back with not one but two new episodes next week.
5: Hi everyone. You're listening to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me as always is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello. Last week on the Women Who Travel site, we dove deep into the outdoors community, sharing tips on getting into hiking and climbing, profiling amazing women like Jolie Varela, who founded Indigenous Women Hike, and much, much more. Of course, the very first step to getting outside is often having the right gear, an elusive and expensive barrier for many, especially women for whom gear, often given a pink paint job, has never quite fit right. To chat all about women's gear this week, we have an all-star lineup. First up, returning guest and Iditarod competitor Blair Braverman. Hello, everybody. And calling in from Portland, we have Jenny Bruso, founder of Unlikely Hikers, the Instagram account and community. Hello. And finally, we've got Shelma Jun, founder of the Flash Foxy climbing community.
4: Hi, everyone. This is by far the most people we have had on a podcast during this pandemic, so uh, very excited to get chatting with the three of you. We are such huge fans of everything that all three of you do, and I wanted to kick it off by just asking how each of you got started in the outdoors in the first place. What was your kind of first dip your toes in moment?
2: I'm kind of a late bloomer to the outdoors. Uh, That isn't to say that I didn't grow up being outdoors. In fact, my best childhood memories all involve being outside, but, you know, being at the beach or gardening with my mom. We didn't necessarily do outdoorsy things like camping and hiking and things like that. In fact, me and my sisters didn't understand it. We didn't like it. We just didn't, since we didn't grow up doing it, we just didn't, we didn't get it. But about eight years ago, I started dating somebody who liked the outdoors, hiking, things like that, and I had already lived in Portland for eight years at that point, and the most I had ever done was, like, drive to a waterfall. And <laughs> uh, and, and you know how amazing it is out up here to, you know, there's so many things to do. And uh, yeah, so I started dating this person, and, and we went on some hikes. In fact, we went on a hike for one of our first dates, and just something inside of me clicked. And ever since then, I've just, it's been my number one way of like grounding myself, getting movement, you know, feeling connected with the world and my place and things, and yeah, it's my favorite thing. <laughs> How about you, Shelma? Yeah, I mean, I would
0: say that I feel like there are like two stages of outdoorsness outdoorsiness uh in my life. My family immigrated from Korea to the United States when I was four and a half, and I grew up in California, and so uh, my family went camping all the time. It was kind of the thing that we did for family vacations because it was the most affordable option. You know, we never went on, I used to call them airplane vacations. We never went on a you know <laughs> vacation where everybody got on an airplane together. Um, we never, you know, stayed at hotels. Like, it was always, and you know, California has so many beautiful national and state parks. It was a really easy way for us to get out and away for the weekend and then I think you know I got really into more organized sports I was a competitive swimmer I played water polo and that kind of led me into getting into surfing and snowboarding which um, kind of reintroduced me to being outdoors and I think what's always been important or what's always been interesting to me is that they always felt really separate because the kind of the way that I went outdoors with my family was never really seen as outdoorsy and like mainstream media so I always kind of thought oh I'm not outdoorsy because I kind of put that camping in a totally separate category than all this other stuff that when I got introduced it through more mainstream channels I was like oh this is being outdoors but now you know taking the time to reflect back on it feeling like really grateful to have had the outdoors such um, be such a huge part of my life since I was young. And Blair remind me you grew up in California too right?
1: I did. I I was thinking that I don't know where you grew up, Shelma, but I was from
2: Davis. Okay, and I grew up
0: uh down down south south of uh, Los Angeles.
2: I grew up in San Diego. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I grew up in Davis and just my mom is really outdoorsy. She's from the Pacific Northwest and my dad's a New Yorker through and through and so we go camping and stuff and I I think it was so hot where I grew up. It was just so hot all the time that I thought about cold places. And my family lived in Norway when I was a kid. And so when I was 18, I moved to the Norwegian Arctic to become a dog sledder. And after that, I started working as a guide, nature guide, dog sledding guide, various things, and uh, have been really lucky that it's become a real part of my work in my life.
4: I think it's really interesting what you were saying, Shalma, about like feeling like the two sections of your outdoorsiness were once separated in your mind. And I mean, I would think of you guys as professional outdoors women. And I'm curious if there was anything that was particularly intimidating or surprising when you started that section of your outdoors journey, that like more professional. Section. I think
1: for, for me, I'm going to be opposite of Shelma here also, because I never thought of myself as sporty or athletic. You know, we have these identities, right? You're outdoorsy or not, you're athletic or not, you're musical or not. And I always loved the outdoors, but, you know, as a kid, right, it was so hot and like everyone did soccer, but I didn't like sweating. And so I just thought I wasn't very sporty. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I got into dog sledding that I found sort of a physical activity that I loved so much, Um that I could just sort of see myself doing it indefinitely.
4: Jenny or Shelma, do you feel like there was anything that was intimidating when you were first getting out climbing or hiking or surprising when you made it out there?
2: Yeah. Similarly to what Blair said, I also didn't really have a lot of physical movement in my life because for me, being a fat person, I always associated exercise, and just the way the exercise is, you know, talked about in American culture, I always associated it with uh, losing weight, hating your body, things like that. I know that's kind of like a deep place to go, but that, that has always been my association until... I discovered joyful movement through hiking. So, you know, that was kind of an epiphany for me. In some ways, I had actively, actively, that's a funny word to use, avoided (laughs) movement and exercise and things like that as me kind of like sticking it to diet culture. But when I found joyful movement, I felt like a part of myself got liberated in a way. And being able to find out that you know, movement is good for my my mental health more than honestly anything uh, was a, was a revelation. Another revelation, I would say, uh, in terms of becoming a, a quote unquote professional outdoors person, uh, is that you know I also discovered that outdoor culture is just in extremely uh, one note. You know, it's very like cis, hetero, uh, you know, white, affluent, all of these things that in some ways I fit into and, and most ways I do not. Um, so I had a lot of reckoning to do with that. And, and I think that that's something that propelled everything, but I'm getting ahead of myself.
0: Shalma, how about you? Um, I mean, I would say that I go through imposter syndrome, like on the daily, like I probably felt it before we got on this call. <laughs> um, and so I think being a woman, being an immigrant, being a person of color, I think it's, you know, it's so much unlearning for me to not doubt myself in these situations all the time. And you know, when I first got into the, when I first got into climbing. It was this different thing where I think snowboarding and um, surfing, which were kind of more of the outdoor things I had done in high school and college. Um, there are a lot of people in cities who do those activities. And I think in climbing at that time, there just weren't that many people in, in, it was just starting to become big in cities. Climbing gyms are just starting to get bigger 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And I remember not knowing anything about the outdoor industry at all. I knew, like, literally who, no, I, I knew nobody, like, I knew people would be like, oh, did you see blah, 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 sent this thing? And I'm like, I don't know who that is. I don't know where that is. I just really like climbing with my friends here, and this is, like, what's fun for me. And then, you know, I think some of the, another, like, a little bit of a roadblock I've, experience and continue to sometimes experience is like, I live in New York city and I love being outdoors and you know, I'll often get somebody being like, Oh my gosh, like, how do you do it? Like, I just, I love the outdoors. I just love being in the outdoors. I couldn't be in the city. It's too crazy. And um, it's so hectic and crowded. And I'm like, why is it mutually exclusive? Like, why can't we be both? Why can't I love all the things about being in a city that are so incredibly special and love the things about being outdoors that are so incredibly special. Like, why do I have to like pick a side in order to be able to talk about it or be a part of that community? And I think that's something where, especially within climbing, where climbing has exploded in in cities, like it's something that we're grappling with and it definitely relates to um, clothing and the outdoors and how it works for us. <laughs> and so um, thank you for
5: setting up my transition so seamlessly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Which is, you know, we're talking about all these barriers that, or, you know, supposed barriers that have been created by an industry that is sort of historically pretty exclusionary and sort of also like having imposter syndrome, like you mentioned, Shelma, and that can be, imposter syndrome can be created by what is on offer to you. And if it doesn't cater for you, then you are led to believe that maybe a space isn't yours. What were some of the barriers that you have all experienced when it comes to looking for gear, especially as beginners and when you were trying to get in, like how, what, what was that shopping experience?
1: I think one of the biggest things about gear, especially, and I'm, I'm speaking as a dog sledder, right? So I am in cold that gets down to 30, 40, 50 below where your gear sort of keeps you alive or doesn't, but it's so expensive. It's so expensive. And I know that's true in other realms of gear also. And the thing about gear for cold weather is you either need money or you need knowledge. There's ways to have gear that will keep you quite comfortable in really extreme cold. But you need to know a lot about layering, about natural fibers. You can, you know, you can outfit yourself for minus 30 with $50 at a thrift store, if you know exactly what you're doing. And if you don't, it's really dangerous. So it's this thing where beginners are coming in and they want to feel comfortable, you know, because you need to feel comfortable. People don't like the cold because, because they're cold. But actually, if you're warm enough in the cold, you can do all sorts of stuff. And it's just as fun. It has so many opportunities. But in order to be warm enough to embrace those opportunities, you need to have gear and it's expensive. And it's, it's just a cycle where people feel like, oh, that's not for me. That's what people say. It's, it's something they are or they aren't, you know? It's, it's the same thing as athleticism. Like I'm not a cold weather person. And then we have people come to us and we always dress them, no matter what. People come to our house, my husband and I run, run our dog team together and we insist on dressing anyone who comes here. And people come out and they'll be like, oh no, 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 you don't need to dress me. Like I have my warm clothes. And the clothes they put on are, like, my base layer. <laughs> like, they they will have their Patagonia puffy and long underwear and jeans and, like, their L.L. Bean boots. And those are, you know, great items. But that is not cold-weather gear. It isn't. And, um, you know, it's always very satisfying to me to just... <laughs> Like It blows people's minds how many layers they're adding and then also how comfortable they can be out there. But that's not something that you can just walk out and do. You need someone to sit down with you or you need the money to just buy really nice stuff. And it's it's a huge roadblock.
5: Blair, out of interest, who taught you?
1: Other mushers, for sure. When I first got into mushing, I went to a folk school, which is this socialist, tuition-free Norwegian boarding school that goes on for a year. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and so I was 18, and I was with these other 18 year olds, basically, and it was super old school, it was on this peninsula in the Arctic, Uh, it was called 69 degrees north, because that's where it was located. And one of the things I really loved about the philosophy there was that everyone sort of started from a clean slate. And we just made a lot of our stuff. We felted wool, we made our boots out of felted wool, and we, you know, just everything, every step of the way, everyone ended up with the same gear, so there wasn't an elitism between students. And, you know, frankly, now I can like upgrade and I have like a Canada Goose parka, which is like carrying a house with you. And it's, it's amazing, I've, you know, sleep, I sleep in it like a sleeping bag, but I didn't have that for the first six or seven years. I was in cold like that and I didn't need it. And there's a big difference. I was really lucky to have that instruction.
4: Before we get to Shama and Jenny's answers, I want to talk about cost with all three of you because there's a specific video that you posted on Twitter, Blair, a year ago, maybe a little longer, where you were stripping through all of the layers (laughs) that you were wearing to keep you alive. And the one thing going through my head was... Oh my gosh, like that must cost so much to have that many layers of clothing. It was
1: probably $4,000 worth of clothing on my body.
4: Where do you guys find safe but reasonably priced gear?
1: eBay.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think I'd want to take a step back and say, yes, a lot of outdoor gear is really expensive. And a lot of the technical gear is really expensive. But I think one of the barriers, even before we get to the fact that a lot of the clothing is expensive, is the idea that you need all the clothing to be outside. I think there's this like stigma that like, oh, I can't go hiking unless I have hiking boots on. I can't go hiking unless I have hiking pants on. I can't, you know, and, or like, oh, I need the climbing Pants or the whatever to like go and like go climb for the day. And I think that, yes, there are situations like the one that Blair talked about, or if I'm like, you know, 15 miles into the backcountry and I have to carry everything on my back with me and I need the lightest things that are going to keep me warm. Yes, in those moments, I absolutely need the technical gear. I would say I need super technical gear 15 to 20% of the time that I'm doing things outdoors. Um, all the other times, I could just be wearing my regular street clothes and it would be fine. Um, so I think that, like beyond the the cost being a factor, I think the idea that you have to have the clothes, these expensive clothes, is already like a barrier to getting outdoors.
2: Similarly to to what Shelma said, when I started hiking, I mean, honestly, for the first few years. I just wore things that I already had. You know, I had a lot of leggings. I was a big party girl at the time that I started hiking. I was a DJ and I wore a lot of, spandex club clothes. And I honestly did transition a lot of my club wear into my hiking clothing. <laughs> um, I would wear like spandex dresses and leggings and uh, and it served me well. You know, I, I did learn, of course, eventually, you know, that wearing things that are not, that don't have cotton blends is much more comfortable, and I'm not, you know, freezing when I start sweating and uh, having to deal with that kind of discomfort. But yeah, when I first started, um, and and for many many years, I just I wore what I had. And another thing at that time, I didn't have the money to even entertain the idea of buying you know, the outdoor clothing and things like that. And and at the same time, it was, you know, doubly not a factor because I couldn't, I and, and this is still true for the most part, I can't walk into an outdoor retailer and find plus size clothing. Uh, so it just, you know, all signs pointed to don't bother, just wear what you have. And I made it work.
4: When you're talking about not being able to access clothes because they don't come in your size in the first place. Was that a main barrier for you for gear in the beginning? How is it still a barrier now? Can you talk us through specifically plus size gear existing in the world or not existing?
2: You know, I'm going on eight and a half years now into this whole outdoor life thing and been doing Unlikely Hikers for four years. And Plus size gear is only now kind of starting to exist and mostly theoretically. I know of some brands that are coming out with outdoor gear uh, or plus size outdoor gear in 2021, but as things currently stand, a plus size backpack does not exist. A plus size backpackable sleeping bag does not exist. I mean, imagine going into a place just for like the most basic of gear and not being able to have the thing that everybody else has. It's it's a huge barrier. You know, it sends a very distinct message and, and it can feel like, you know, I mean, well, it doesn't just feel like you're not being included, you're not being included. So yeah, I would say that it's starting to get a little bit better. Plus size outdoor clothing is definitely getting a lot better, but there's still not a lot of technical type gear. I mean, I... I think off the top of my head, the only plus-size gear that I can really think of in this moment is a climbing harness from Misty Mountain Threadworks. Uh, And it's amazing, but yeah, other than that, it's a whole lot of making it work.
1: Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfegh talk about why we write. Story,
0: or attaching a story or creating a story, is this
1: inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I'm Tanya Mosley. Shelma, going back to
4: your answer to the question I asked, like, 15 minutes ago at this (laughs) point. Um, But what do you feel like were barriers to you gear-wise getting started in climbing specifically? I mean, I think that there are probably, like, three different
0: types of barriers, I would say. I would say the first would be cost. Definitely everything being super expensive. You know, I found climbing right as I was going into grad school, which, you know, and kind of coming right out of grad school with a bunch of student loans. First of all, I was just trying to buy the things I knew I absolutely needed, like a harness and climbing shoes and like a belay device, like things I knew were absolutely essential. And then I climbed in jeans and I hiked to the climbing areas in my vans or you know whatever and then it was a bummer because then my nice sneakers got ruined because I didn't have (laughs) shoes to wear (laughs) when I was out on hikes um I think cost was definitely a barrier knowledge I just didn't know that many people who were really into like outdoor things and like a lot of my climbing friends were also beginners so they also didn't really know but I think like knowledge knowledge is was like a huge barrier for me getting um into technical things and then I mean It might feel really superficial, but it was like fashion too, like style. I felt like nothing represented me. And I think, you know, clothes, they tell a story of who you are and you and you feel it helps you to feel comfortable when you're wearing things that feel like you right and I always felt that like wearing these clothes just like I I always call it even now I call it my climbing costume I'm like I'm gonna put my climbing costume on and like go guide somebody now because it feels like a costume it doesn't feel like my clothes like I always say I wish that all my climbing gear like my climbing clothing match the rest of my wardrobe and right now it just doesn't at all and so even then I was like I didn't even want to try the technical stuff because nothing looked like something I'd want to wear and it didn't even really fit me super well a lot of times because a lot of climbers are super athletic and they have like a really stick thin build and I have a butt and hips so like the pants didn't fit me properly um they'd either fit up my hips or fit up my waist but they like never fit in both spots um so I ended up climbing just in jeans like almost exclusively jean shorts jeans cotton tees but yeah I mean I would say like the function like you know knowledge about what I needed and when I actually like I feel overwhelmed like I look and I'm like which jacket is the jacket I'm supposed, like, which is the one that I need? There's like 17 different types. I think the knowledge around that stuff, the cost, and then the fashion, I would say those are like my three main barriers. Shelmer, I think it's really interesting that you said kind
5: of overwhelmed. And I think we're talking about the gear itself, but there's also the experience of going into a store that's selling the gear and the kind of challenges that that presents. Do you think that brands are getting better when it comes to having people working in their retail stores who know how to cater to and talk with a whole host of different type of people who are wanting to get into the outdoors and aren't just thinking of one type of shopper. Do you think we're there yet?
2: I'm gonna say no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have had a few good experiences walking into outdoor retailers. It's funny, sometimes I'm walking into places I actually work with and I will just be completely ignored. Um, Or if I ask a question, I will be passed on to someone else, and it it just, which is fine. You know, if somebody's busy, that's one thing, but it sort of feels like I'm often treated like I don't know what I'm asking for, or there's also an assumption that I'm just getting started in whatever I'm doing. And, you know, that's okay because plenty of beginners are are coming into these places and they should be met where they're at but there's often an assumption just based on my appearance I believe that people think that I'm getting in fact I see it all the time on social media when brands post photos of me people in the comments will say things like oh looks like a beginner or I can't believe she wears her backpack like that or you know just like ridiculous stuff like that but yes and it's it's not always a great experience.
1: I don't go into outdoor stores because I live in the boonies in the Northwoods. <laughs> and I think the nearest outdoor store is like four hours South of me for real. Um, and they don't sell the kind of stuff. I, I mean, mushing is sort of like how I imagine like surfing in the sixties where everyone's just making their own stuff anyway, cause it's not being made. Um, so a lot of my gear I make myself, for instance, like I, I wear a, a lot of fur, um, from animals that my dogs have eaten. And, um, You know, that's not something I can buy or I wouldn't want to, right? At least this way, I know where it's coming from. And where I end up going is like Fleet Farm, Alaska Industrial Hardware, AIH, sort of workwear stores, because those are what's going to have. What I need is really cold weather gear that's also durable. And the really cold weather gear that's sold at that sort of mainstream outdoor stuff is like for climbing Everest, which is not particularly durable. It will not last when you're dog sledding. So for me, you know, when I have found stuff at that intersection, a it never, ever, ever, ever comes in women's. Just everything I wear is always men's, which I don't mind because I like looking from like a man from a distance when I'm alone in the wilderness. I like that snowmobilers see me from like across a lake and I look like a man just so they don't harass me, right? Which is sad, but it's true. But I've found, you know, the best stuff I've found has actually been often from brands that are super niche. Like there's this brand called Refrigerware, which is for people who work inside industrial freezers and like just literally like they go into a freezer and work all the day the world in a is your
4: industrial freezer <laughs> the world <where?
1: laughs> is my industrial <laughs> freezer so it's super durable and it's super warm and it's affordable because like it's not made for people who are like doing this as their hobby who just you know can throw money at it it's all for men obviously but you know it's sort of like you discover those niches and that ends up being your saving grace tell
4: them how about you
0: I also don't go into stores super often. I think a lot of, like right when I started climbing, I bought a lot of things online on sale. And so that's kind of how I would end up getting most of my gear when I first started. And I actually get a lot of anxiety going like shopping. So (laughs) I try to avoid it if I can. I don't, like, you know, I don't particularly enjoy going and perusing through things. So I'll tend to just like try to buy stuff online if i can i've definitely gone into places and they've just kind of been like well it's like this or this it just depends on what you want and you're like i don't i don't know what i want that's why i'm here like that's why i asked the question i, I don't know what I. if i knew what i wanted i would have just grabbed it and i would have come to the register so yeah i mean i think th- you know i think it is getting better but maybe a little too slowly
5: <laughs> and kind of off the back of that you know Jenny and Shelmer, you've both created these like incredible outdoors communities and Blair, you have an amazing platform with so many followers and you write, I'm wondering kind of like using these platforms and these communities, how do you think you can help people have more access to gear or sort of start to build a knowledge and a confidence when it comes to researching and buying their own gear?
2: I, I, with unlikely hikers, I actually post about gear a lot, and on my personal Instagram account and on my blog, I a lot of times. Am, I mean, a big, a big something that's really important to me is to sort of like demystify gear and uh, talk about things in understandable terms for people who might be just getting started or who, who, who have always done these things but just don't have the terminology and things like that. I wouldn't even really say that I'm somebody who has all of the terminology, but talking about gear in ways that are inviting and non-intimidating, a lot of times I'll even make posts that are just, like, ask me anything, and I'll have, like, a big spread of all of my gear from whatever activity I was doing, and I'll even put, like, a little thing, like, you know, this is a, you know, a safer space, don't, you know, talk at people, give advice only when asked, that kind of thing, to just kind of set some ground rules, because it can be very intimidating to talk about gear, and yeah, you know, walking, like Shama was saying, like, you sometimes don't know exactly what you need, and and you need somebody to kind of like lay it out for you as is. And I feel like I'm still learning about gear all of the time. So I want to share that knowledge with my communities.
0: Yeah, I definitely need a tutorial from Blair about how to layer because I'm really bad at
2: it. I feel like I didn't even
0: really realize what scarves were for until I moved to New York. And I was like, oh, it like keeps the wind from going down your your jacket. Like, oh, how useful. Well um, will talk You're <laughs> like, um, oh, it's not just an accessory. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, when you asked this question, the thing that kind of immediately came to mind is that we have a Facebook group and there's about like 4,500 women in it. It's like our women's climbing forum that we host. And I would say like one of the most popular types of posts and the types of posts that we get the most engagement for are when somebody asks, hey, I'm looking for a harness to do X, Y, and Z. Can anybody give me recommendations? And then people are in the comments just talking about their personal experiences. Like I'm looking for a pair of pants like that actually fit, you know, somebody who's shaped like me. And so I think crowdsourcing, especially for women and gear and climbing has been super helpful for a lot of folks and also helpful for me. I'm definitely in there um, often like being like, oh, like that's really cool. I think there's just so much stuff out there now too. Like the industry is so big and there's so many people making things. It's hard to know like what the differences are and where the value lies. And you know, it's like you're doing, and kind of with every piece, there's never one person who's done it perfectly
4: obviously during this time, we haven't all necessarily been able to explore the outdoors in the way that we would have maybe initially planned for 2020. But I would love to know if there are any women that you follow on social media who have really inspired you either to get outdoors or just you've really enjoyed watching what they've been doing during this lockdown quarantine period.
2: A couple of people who I love following and who I feel like always give me inspiration and permission to just be my entire self outdoors are Myrna Valerio, the runner. She's a a distance runner, a biker or a cyclist. She's just incredible. Uh, She's somebody who I started following really early on when I started getting really excited about outdoors life and whatnot. And also, I really love following Nikki Smith, who is a rock climber, an author, a photographer? Uh, she's just a total badass, and she's somebody who I feel like always kind of has her eye on making sure that all kinds of people are represented outdoors. You know, uh, queer and trans people, and um, just she's just a, an awesomely vocal person who I I look up to.
0: I agree. Uh, Myrna Valerio is great. And and Nikki is a dear friend of mine. And yeah, I would say kind of on top of that, honestly, Jenny's Instagram is great. She's always brutally honest. And if she's not feeling it, you know it. And I love that. (laughs) I would say that another person that I follow is Pinar. They run uh, Queer Quechua and Queer Nature, and their posts are always so insightful into their experience. And I think I learn a lot about things I hadn't thought about before. And so I find that to be like incredibly so like rejuvenating to be reading things that I'm not just
4: reading everywhere else. Blair, how about you?
1: Well, I follow Jenny for sure. And I have for a while and Shelma, I can't wait to follow you. Although I have never climbed. So, uh, you know, you might give me some inspiration. I've never climbed yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll give it a try someday. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I follow, I'd say my friend, Julie Buckles is a dog sledder and I love her very much. And she takes beautiful photos up in the North woods. And, um, She also just started a bookstore called Honest Dog Books, which is a mushing term. So uh, you can also get your, you know, indie books straight from her. And she sends them in a cute little package. Also, Abby Wise, who's an editor at Outside, who edits me a lot and I love her. She has a newsletter called Sticks and Stones, which is a roundup of news about women in the outdoors and non-binary people in the outdoors. And is really focused on inclusivity and diversity and sort of having tough conversations, ways people are calling out the industry and pushing it to be better. And it is the only email newsletter I immediately open every time it comes. So, you know, that's not that's not social media, but maybe that's a bonus at this moment that you can just sign up and
4: it comes to you. Before we get to you all social media, is there anything else that you'd like to chat about gear-wise?
1: Can I put in a
4: recommendation for a piece
1: of women's gear? Mm-hmm that or it's often women's gear that people only ask me about privately all the time which is stand to pee devices and uh I have tried a lot and the best one is the pee style they have really I just feel like there's people who who have um you know sit around a table and come up with puns for the names of these devices (laughs) because there are a lot of them but uh the pee style is really really good just throwing throwing that out there because people always want to know but they don't want to ask
2: I recently was asked about my favorite gear for an article, and I only named pee-related things, and I didn't really really realize it (laughs) (laughs) at first. Do you have a different favorite? Should I expand my horizons? No, the pee style is number one. Oh, and
5: I would like like to clarify that that article can be found on Condé Nast Traveler's (laughs) Women Who Travel.
1: You know, they do have this thing that some mushers use, and they're they're called pee pants. They're like these tight shorts with a thing that runs down your leg so you can just pee while you're walking around in extreme cold. And I have seen mushers who are wearing this, if they get mad at someone, walk over to someone's truck and shake their leg and pee on the tire.
0: I have a
5: question. (laughs) If you're walking in the snow in those pants, are you leaving a trail behind yourself?
2: I don't know. I've never tried it. I I imagine... (laughs) It still sounds like a lot of pee on one's body. <laughs> yeah, agree.
0: Like, are you storing the pee, or do you like get rid of it immediately? Am- like, there's no, so many just, questions. It just goes
1: out your How many times leg. Your <laughs> How do you I clean don't it? I don't know. I'd Google this. <laughs> um,
0: I'm, I'm going to Google it later. Yeah, I need answers. <laughs> the addendum to the pee style or any of these devices would be to definitely practice in the shower.
4: Yeah, so That'd be like
0: my number number one advice. Yes.
4: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, if this doesn't feel like the perfect place to end, I don't know. <laughs> if people want to follow each of your journeys on the internet, uh, where can they find you? And we'll start with Shelma. Um,
0: yeah, uh, you can find me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Shelmatic. And if you're interested in our women's climbing community, it's at hey Flash Foxy.
1: Hey, Shelma, do you need to know how to climb to join the community? Absolutely not. Okay.
0: We have like, we run a women's climbing festival and we get women who've never climbed or never climbed outside who come all the time. It's awesome. They're way braver than I am.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Jenny, how about you? You can find me on Instagram at unlikelyhikers and at Jenny Bruso. I'm Blair.
1: I use Twitter, Blair Braverman, um, Please don't follow me on Instagram. I have an account I've been locked out of for five years. <laughs> uh, so it's embarrassing. Don't find it. Wow. Um, everyone leave. immediately right now. No, <laughs> no, it was like part of the journalism project, which is great, but out of context, it's weird. I
4: don't know. <laughs> um, wow, that's, that's amazing. You can find me on Instagram at oh hey there mayor,
5: And you can find me on Instagram at
4: Lalehanna. Be sure to check out our Guide to the Outdoors for Women and by Women, which will be linked in the show notes, as will links to all of the amazing outdoors people mentioned in this podcast episode. And with that, we'll talk to you next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation.
3: She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots, I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead?
4: There is one suspect, her father the Sheikh.
1: It's Madeleine Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague Heidi Blake at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world,
4: the ruler of Dubai.
5: Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away?
4: There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house.
3: So basically, I'm a hostage.
4: And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it.
1: The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.